Well, good morning. I uh, just did a quick inventory, and I want you to know that we have a certain kind of a sickness here. This is, this is just to expose all the mystery, this is what's inside of our pulpit. Um, and not... <laughs> leave, leave some for everybody else. Um, like, like, what's going on here? It's like a, it's like a word fest, man. That's a good problem. <laughs> That's right. I'm not sure what we have going on. I have some kind of an issue here. Uh, Nicholas has a problem with buying really expensive Bibles too. Um, you guys talk to him. Right? No, you don't. I'm not here. <laughs> All right, here we go. Getting them back. Um, Going to be honest with you, I don't know how we're going to get through this today. Uh, there's a lot. We're in uh, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Normally, we would uh, start off and have someone uh, read. That's definitely our normal um, tempo, but we are pressed today. Uh, so I want to I encourage you with one thing, um, and this is actually something that my, my brother Jim uh, Douglas asked me to encourage you with before we got started this morning. Um, and that is, when we wrap up today, I will tell you how to give your money to this church. Let's jump right in. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's how our passage, which goes from Chapter 3, verses 6 through chapter 3, verse 12 begins. And I would say that probably for understanding this passage, that one verse is where we should camp and spend probably most of our time. Um, mentions the children of Israel. If you were to, uh, telling you, you would sprain your thumbs and index finger if we were to try to jog from uh, Genesis to uh, Numbers and, and try to track this story down. Um, and so don't, don't do that yet. I'll, I'll tell you when it's time to start flipping, but just hang out with me for a second. In Genesis chapter 28, we see that um, Jacob finds a wife. Interesting story. Read that uh, on your own. A very patient man he was. Um, they, they have uh, 12 sons, we see in, in Genesis 30. And then later in 49, we see of those 12 sons, he makes promises to each. Those are the 12 tribes. Um, and that's really important because this is how this section starts off. It tells us exactly who this is to. Um, and by way of negative commentary, it shows us exactly who this is not to. Um, and that's very important because maybe you've never heard this particular passage taught on before, um, or maybe you've heard it taught wonderfully, but I think the chances are that you've probably heard it taught horribly. Uh, you've probably heard it taught manipulatively. You've probably heard it taught in a way that, you know, when you find out it's Mission Sunday, you know, you forget your wallet at home or your checkbook because you know what the whole Sunday is about. Um, just like there's there's lots of different things. You can tell what's going on in a church by what Bible study they jump into if it's not an exegetical church. Um, so if they're, you know, if, if you're going to go to the, the book of Revelation, it's because the numbers are down and it's time to pump them up. Um, if you're coming to Malachi chapter 3, there's a giving campaign. Um, you know, there's going to be a building campaign uh, when you get into certain books. And so Malachi has that muscle memory for us. And so if you've never heard this passage taught, I say, great, let's look at it together. If you have, I'd say just come to this with an open Bible, not an open mind. Um, I believe that the word gone forward and, and taught uh, appropriately and correctly, with, which is by justifying itself and by comparing the word with the word, will explain itself. Um, so, so come to this passage with an open Bible. Now, it also says that these children of Jacob are not consumed. Um, and so we'll, we'll draw on that. But spoiler alert, um, it, they're not consumed because of God's promises, not because of their behaviors, not because of their you know, ability to keep the law. In fact, in spite of those things, they're not consumed because God is gracious um, and I think we mentioned uh, several weeks back that oftentimes what you'll hear 
um, is that you know the God was God is a God of grace in the New Testament. God is a, a God of um, of justice in the Old Testament. So just write that phrase on a piece of paper. Um, that that the Old Testament says that God is a judging God, and that the New Testament says that God is a graceful God. Write that on a piece of paper and throw it away and forget you ever heard it, um, because that's about what that is good for. I Jehovah do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Um, in order to really understand what's happening, we have to step back a little. And so I would ask you to flip to Numbers um, Numbers chapter 22. Uh, it doesn't escape me that Numbers, if you've ever done a chronological read of the Bible, is one of those areas where you've gotten stuck. Right? It's really hard to plow through. Um, but I think it should be interesting here this morning. As you're, as you're flipping and as you're getting there, just know that what we're doing is we're going back in time. Uh, we're going into a historical text. These are not interesting stories, and maybe, maybe you're new to studying the Bible, um, and, and that's, I want to say right now, that's perfectly fine. Please, if I ever make an assumption that you know something and you don't, ask me. Uh, that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. It's completely fine that we're here for that, in fact. That's why we exist. Um, and so you're really going back in time into a historical narrative. What I mean by that is that you're hearing about stories, but you know when we say Bible stories, I'm not saying um, Bible story like a children's book is a story. I'm saying a Bible story meaning a recording of something that actually happened. Right? You could hop on a plane if your government would allow you to. You could fly to Jerusalem and you could walk the lands where much of this happened. And they would say, look, there are the plains that are being discussed in this story. Look, this is where Lot would have lived. Look, this is where the pillar of salt would have been. Look, this is how the, 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 the ground, the actual physical landscape changed um, because of things that happened here. And if you even scratch the surface of the ground, they don't even want to build um, in Israel because if they start to scratch the ground, it's just going to become an archaeological dig site. When uh, my family and I lived in Naples, Italy, I remember that they would try to build all the time. And as soon as they would, you know, the, the equipment would come, they'd find something, and they'd be cordoned off with ropes. Um, and there would be archaeologists there digging because it's just layer after layer after layer of biblical history. And so we're going back in time to an historical place. And we're a bit handicapped when we come to something like this, so we have to do work because the people to whom Malachi would go and Malachi would say something like, I, the Lord, do not change, or I, Jehovah, do not change. They would realize this is using covenant language. We're starting to go into uh, covenant concepts and covenant ideas. Oh, children of Jacob, they're familiar with that lineage. They know what's being talked about. They know who's in scope is the children of Israel who are part of the covenant. And they'll know when they hear the consummation, that you're not consumed language. They'll understand what Malachi is working toward. But we have to do a little more work. So what we have is Israel in Moab ready to cross over into Canaan. God is fulfilling a promise that was in Genesis chapter 17 that he would bring them to this land. And so what we're drawing on is this concept of God's promises, God's promises being fulfilled. And even when it seems like it's impossible and everything is working against God, pulling that off anyway. So in Numbers 22... Interestingly, we have someone who reports to know God, who seems to be hearing from God, but loves money. <laughs> you know, you may not be surprised to know that there are people like that today. They can read their Bible, they can hear from God, and man, do they love money. Now, there's another off-misquoted statement about money. Um, it says that money is the root of all evil, right? Maybe you've heard that except it's the love of money. Money can be a fantastic thing. Um, if you're like an incredibly wealthy person, and what I mean by that is you have equity stake in some massive Fortune 1 through 5 company, I want to know about that. We want to loose some of those funds in amazingly God-honoring, epic, biblical proportions. There is nothing wrong with money. Money's great. Money can do fantastic things for the kingdom of God. You can use unrighteous mammon to introduce people to Christ in incredible ways. It's the love of money that starts to turn our hearts towards doing things that we should question. And we'll see that today 
in Numbers 22, and that's what's being drawn on here by Malachi. Even though I would submit to you, Malachi's not really talking about money here. The man's name is Balaam. If you've heard of him before, you're kind of giggling a little bit. Maybe you've never heard of him before. Maybe you didn't grow up with a King James Bible and you'd flip through this story and go, <laughs> Balaam is being called on by someone called Balak. Balak is afraid of what's about to happen. He's looking across the plains and he sees tons and tons of people. Or how about thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people because you don't generally weigh people and talk about their joint weight. So he sees lots of people that are about to take over, and they, he knows that they've defeated anyone in their path, most recently Moab. And so as a ruler or as a leader of this area that's about to be enveloped or lapped up off the ground like a donkey, he's very nervous. And so Balak sends for Balaam, Balaam excuse me, asking for him to come and to curse Israel. So a man that hears from God, who apparently knows God, and he wants this man to come and curse God's people from coming and taking him over, devouring his area. And so he probably should not go, but he will, because he loves him some money. Now, I'm making this all sound very easy, but I understand where he is. I mean, we're not talking about like just a couple of dollars. Basically, we're talking about a king of a nation saying, there's no limit to what you can have if you just come help me in this moment. So there's temptation there, and I understand it. But love of money, we will see, will cause him to divert or dilute his first love towards God. And, and herein lies the problem. Again, money itself is not a problem. What the desire for money, the lust for money, the lust for the things that money can buy you can unloose or reveal is a lack of reliance on God. A desire for something else other than being in God's good graces and God's will, doing things that align with God's character. And so Balaam goes to Balak even after seeing the angel of the Lord. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with this exchange, You'll know that he saddles up his donkey after, you know, after hearing from God a couple of times, saddles up his donkey, decides that he's going to go to this scenario. He's riding on his, his donkey. I don't know how that happens. I'm doing this motion. I don't know if that's how you even ride a donkey. Maybe you walk it. I don't know. Uh, but however that works, his donkey is able to perceive the angel of the Lord in the path. He's not. This is funny. Okay. He is so disconnected from God, the donkey sees the angel, or he doesn't even, right? He's, 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 in a sense, hearing from God in visions, but he's so far and so disconnected from God. He's on a, on a quest for cash. We see that in chapter 22, verses 22 through 25. And now he's going to get explicit instruction. Only say what God tells you to. And so Balak takes Balaam to several different vantage points, looking over the plain, maybe. We see in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or son of a man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So the promises to Israel are going to come to pass because... God promised them to Israel. And this is where a healthy understanding of, of sovereignty is very important. When we say that God is sovereign, we don't just mean that God's pretty powerful as long as he can convince people to agree with him, right? He, he's, not, he's not like a human leader, um, like a senator or a congressperson who's looking to get the majority, a 51% group of people to agree so that their will would be done. God doesn't start with a desire to have a $3 trillion bill and settle for $1.5 trillion. His will is done perfectly and exactly as he desires. That is sovereignty. He is completely sovereign. That's why there would be a son to Abraham. There would be the 12 tribes. And often 
these things are fulfilled against almost seemingly impossible circumstances. The land in Canaan would be delivered. Salvation would come to those who would believe through the Lamb of God. All of these things that God has promised come to be. God's not a future teller. He's a fourth teller. God says what will be. He doesn't tell you what will happen by people's free will. He's not like Ms. Cleo looking into the magic ball to give you your free reading, right? If you remember her, straight out of Jamaica. Or Hollywood, Florida, you know, it's whatever. His promises come to pass because of his faithful and consistent nature. God's not like some kind, you know, we're very impressed with ourselves now because we have AI and machine learning, right? If you're in the IT industry at all, that's, you can just walk into a room and talk about AI ML and look cool. Um, this is just idiot computers learning by making tons of mistakes really fast, right? Or the Chinese Communist Party having billions and billions and billions of images and so being able to scan them and learn things about you and your family and the kinds of decisions you'll make. This is not how God functions. God doesn't learn by testing and saying, oops, and making a mistake and taking a new direction. It was always going to be that his moral creatures would sin by not trusting him, and he always had the exact same plan that for a period between uh, the time at which he would send his son and the perfect timing, and then after, after that time when his son came, it was always that by his grace through the faith exercised by the elect that God would save some. It's never, it's not that God has learned and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that. I made them, clo I made them naked and then they realized they were naked and then they started having kids. That was weird. This was always the plan. This is all by design. You would have to be a plain fool to look at the world around you and think it was by accident. I mean, honestly, really, well, you almost have to just decide, I'm going to think something dumb. Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Genesis, uh, the book of Romans says that. It can be plainly perceived through creation that there is a God. Just by looking at the complexity of nature around us, there's just a God. The only question is, who is God? And that's what the scriptures do for us. And so God's plan will come to pass because he is sovereign. Israel, according to Genesis 17, 8, will go to Canaan. And this is what Malachi, by God, is drawing on to snap the attention of the Israelites, to snap their attention to realize that they need to conform to God's will and his character and his nature. They need to act appropriately as people who want to be obedient to a sovereign God that cares for them and, and wants to give them all of these promises. They just, this is the thing that they need to do. And so Malachi will come to them and remind them of that by a history that they're very much aware of. If we think back in our own book here in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17, one of the disputations that Malachi took with Israel or that Malachi presented that God took with Israel is verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And to that I would say, <laughs> Trust me, you do not want the God of justice all here right now. That would be very problematic for you and for me and for everyone. We don't want God to, I mean, we, we think we do, right? Just like if you've ever been in a position where someone is going to lose their job, or maybe you work with a coworker and you're like, I wish that person would just get fired. And then they do, and you realize it's actually pretty nasty when people lose their job and their livelihood and they can't care for their family, you know? And, and the lust of the flesh in that moment, you feel like, I just dislike that person so much. I want them to lose their job. I want them to be fired. And then the reality of that comes around. Um, and so in a much greater way, we do not want to see the justice of God all at one time, all right now. People do evil. People sin against God, and he knows. But looking at that sin... And calling it good, 
that's, that's an evil thing to do, to look at resistance and working against God's character and nature and say, that's actually really good, is patently evil. Um, and, and when I talk about evil, um, we can only touch the tip of the iceberg. We don't really understand what evil means, but we can see little outworkings of it in the world. And one of the ones that, that always um, confounds me, and I don't understand it, is crimes against children. I do not have a place in my mind or in my heart for crimes against children, be they abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I don't understand that. I don't have a compartment for it. And so when I start thinking about evil, that's one of the first outworkings that I think of. Because I, I think we, you know, we, we can have a tendency, whether it's just to kind of numb pain in ourselves, uh, to start to kind of laugh about evil and try to make it be a funny or a light thing. I assure you, it is not a light thing. And so saying that someone who does evil is good, that's a, that's a, that's a very uh, slippery slope that we shouldn't be on. We, we should want to be able to call sin, sin. We should not start saying sinful things are good. Even if it makes it more comfortable, we think, for us to deal with the people around us, to call something sinful good, if we're in a place to know what sin is, really doesn't care for that person that we're talking to. It's, it's selfish for us. It's that we want to be more comfortable rather than allow that someone see that they're differentiated from God, right? That difference is important. Without seeing a difference, we can't ask anyone to in any way change. That's what holiness is. The holiness of God is completely different from us. So if we look at ourselves and we excuse away everything about ourselves, everything about our culture, everything about the world around us and say, that's actually good, God would want that, then we don't allow people and in some ways, we start to wear at our own conscience to see the difference between God and man. And, and it really, it should, it's, it's that black and white. It should be very easy to see the difference between people and the sovereign creator of the universe who is holy and righteous. If it's not, we're the confused one. It's not that God isn't different. It's that we're lying to ourselves or we've been deceived. So this is a disputation that God had with Israel. He brings through Malachi. Everyone who does evil is good, is what they were saying. Or by asking, well, where's the God of justice? Right, Desiring that God come and just fix everything, forgetting that there is evil in them. Romans 1.25 can be helpful. And, and here's why I do this. Imagine... I would, I would, why don't you turn there? That's a good one, Romans 125. Um, imagine I, I'm in this sanctuary and I'll, I'll put my back to this window and let's just say light is flooding through that window and I'm facing kind of this way, if you will. Somebody comes through that door and they cast a long shadow and, and maybe I'm reading and, and the shadow comes up right, right beside me. What I won't do is glance up from my reading and look down at the shadow and start to guess, who is that? You know, I won't look at the shadow and say, is that, is that John Nicholas? John, is that you? I'll turn around and I'll look at it. Because I can see him. And I can see more detail when I turn around and look. So why would I look at the shadow? And so the same thing is true when we read our scripture. The Old Testament, not the, the, the light of the world, the Lamb of God was not yet revealed. He was spoken about the whole scriptures. Now that we see it, there's a crimson thread, it says, runs from Genesis to Revelation. That crimson thread is the blood of Jesus, who would be the Lamb of God that would, um, by his blood, bring remission for sins. And so rather than trying to fully understand Jesus and fully understand the God of will only in the Old Testament, I would look to the light of the New Testament to understand it more clearly. In the same way, I can look, at the truths revealed in the New Testament, look back to the Old Testament to understand how God sovereignly wove everything together and better understand the fuller picture. So that said, Romans 1.25 reads this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, they were in fact worshiping and serving the creature. Well, nothing's changed. We see that today. 
in, in spades, in multitudes. End over end, day after day, we see creature worship. Um, just go to the grocery store, look at the magazine rack, and you see creature worship. We will believe anything that people say. Uh, whatever Oprah says, whatever Deepak Chopra says, whatever any number of other people say. Why do we take what they say as true? Do they have a lot of money? Okay, whatever. maybe they're insane. So I'm going to believe an insane person who has a lot of money? Like, you know, we used to not ask insane people what they thought. We used to just say, you're insane, and camp them off. Now we say, tell me more. Let me redefine what I know. Crazy, crazy person. Every day. We, we're literally, I mean, just watch the news. That's why it's so helpful that the scriptures span such a huge swath of time and give us truth about God. We see the differing ways that God interacts before Christ with people. We learn about the consistency in God's character and his nature progressively about his plan through very complete revelation that's actualized in Jesus. And when we finally get to Jesus, we look back and we go, oh my gosh, that all makes so much sense. The Passover, which seemed pretty nuts, makes a lot of sense. The exile makes a lot of sense. Them building up in mass in the exile and becoming such a huge number of people makes a lot of sense. God taking them from exile, bringing them up into the edge of water with an entire nation's army behind them makes a lot of sense. All of the scripture with the light from the New Testament to the Old becomes incredible. And so when we come to this text in Malachi, we have to realize both where they were when this was said and where we are now. And that helps us understand what to do with this today. Because it's in our scriptures, it's here for us for some reason. Is it a record of what happened and we see God's character in it? Are there lasting truths here for us to pull from it? Are we still supposed to do these things? Or is it prescribing what was happening? Or excuse me, describing what was happening like the book of Acts. We say it's descriptive, not prescriptive. The book of Acts describes what the early church was doing. It doesn't necessarily prescribe these are all the things you must continue doing. And so we have to take some other means to understand what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. So the same way with the book of Malachi. Perhaps there are things here that we should still do. We have to read the text using normal ways that people understand things and divide it to understand. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is consistent. And that's great. I told you before, my oldest son, when I sent him off to school with the Bible, in the front, it says the world around you will change and this will stay the same. And that's important. That's very, very important. That we can understand life consistently from its creator is important. The egg. Take something as simple as the egg. You know what I mean? The little, you know, uh, how do they rate extra large grade A egg? Put it too close to the light in the refrigerator. You can kind of see through it. That has moved from being good and bad for you in my lifetime at least 70,000 times. It's gone from it'll kill you to it's fantastic for you to everything in between. We're just creatures. We kind of learn by a process of trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and kind of succeeding and then later realizing, no, that was a failure. And so we want to come to ourselves to understand truth? Can't even describe an egg. But we think we can describe all these other complexities of life, even looking back over history to see when we've been so sure and then mm, turns out that was real bad. I and mean, we've got some really good example of real bad stuff that we were real sure on. And yet, we'll take a snapshot in time, and we're positive that someone's on the right side and the wrong side of history. 
based on how we feel, based on our own experience, based on where we come from, instead of based on an eternal truth that we can rely on from an author who is good. We'll worship the creature who says what's true rather than the creator who is truth. Brother Jim was talking even this morning about Pol Pot, right? It was Pol Pot, right? I mean, that's, there's some sick stuff that's going on in the world. You don't even have to go back that far to find more disgusting things. It wasn't that long ago that we were determining how much percentage of a person was worthy of voting or what a, what a skull angle determined about someone. Uh, what, it, it wasn't that much long ago that, that uh, Margaret Thatcher started up an evil regime to murder humans, specific kinds of humans, and it still runs today. And we say it's great. You get in front of the TV and say, this is fantastic. And they're, you know, abortion is great. You really need it. It's very important for who we are as a people. We should do more abortion. It's worship of creature, not creator. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So knowing that God is consistent, that his promises from Genesis 7, 8, through Numbers 23, through Malachi 3, through Revelation and into the future will never, ever change, gives us spinal fortitude. It lets us stand up when people want us to stand down. It lets us rely on the God of creation as opposed to people. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 reveals for us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. If God has called for something to be, if God has given something, he doesn't pull it back, he doesn't withdraw it, he doesn't remove it. If it's part of his eternal will, it's there. And so, when we read Jeremiah thirty eleven, sorry, this is where the thumb sprains start. If we read Jeremiah 30, 11, we read, For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations, among whom I scattered you. But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you and measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. It's like my when we lived on uh, 2nd Street, the 2500 block of 2nd Street. Right? If you're from the area, you know about what I'm talking about. Um, we were in the living room of our house one day, you know, we hear all these horns honking, which isn't that strange, right? It's a high traffic area. Sometimes it's because there's a parade of fire trucks coming. Sometimes it's because people are angry at people. This time it was because my toddler was standing in the middle of the road. Um, and so I didn't go out there and, and say, <laughs> that's funny, look at you, and go in the house. I went and I got him and I brought him in the house and I disciplined him, appropriate for his age, but clearly I can't let this little thing toddle into the middle of the road where cars burn at a pretty good clip and where you really can't see because there's people parked on either side. And so God, in the same way, didn't allow Israel to go crazy in their sin against him. He would pull them back so that they would be safe. Not because he was unloving, rather because he loved them. And so he made, him, he made them safe by chastising them. He made them safe by not leaving them unpunished, as it says in Jeremiah 30, 11. But also to the mind of the people hearing from Malachi now, maybe they're starting to think about the ways that God brings them back, the ways that God pulls them in, the fact that he'll see them through, but also the fact that he disciplines them in just measure. Because God is not an evil taskmaster who just wants to hurt people and, and whip them and abuse them. God is a loving Father who wants to bring people back into right relationship. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, we are squarely in the middle of Israel's history and their interaction with God. And so there are principles and truths to uncover and see about God's nature. We're reading specifically about a called people for specific purposes before Christ's earthly existence. 
And Malachi's hearers interact differently with this text than we do. I would say as a church, we land similarly on the issue of Sabbath keeping to a very specific people who are called in a very specific way differently than us. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So we see God is calling them to repentance. God is calling them back. This is loving. This is the sovereign creator of the universe who could just wax these people. But he's not. Not only is he not, he's specifically sending a messenger to go to them in the midst of their sin when they have all of these accusations against God. They're calling evil good, and perhaps they're calling good evil. They're asking, where's the God of justice? They're assuming that he's unfair. They're turning their back on him, perhaps. But he sends someone to go and get them. And maybe, maybe you're familiar with that in your own story of salvation, that when you were the most angry with God, someone somewhere and somehow showed up in your life and said weird stuff. And you went to some weird church somewhere and you heard some weird person give a weird message about a Jesus who's the son of God that came and lived in all ways like us, but without sin and did so for you so that you could then be made right with God. Praise God for that, right? Beautiful are the feet that will carry that gospel message to you so that you can know your God and now you can be weird too. Because if all that's normal, I'm glad with being weird. So God calls them to repentance. God's calling people to return is completely normal because people are far. We like to think that we're born sprinting towards God if we're even really believing that we're not with him already. We like to think we're sprinting towards God. We're right there nipping at his heels. We just want to be good. We are not. That is not a picture of us. Um, truth be told, we hate God in our natural state. Now, you don't probably, you may not feel that way. You may not say, I hate God. You might even say you think you love God, but you probably love like a cartoon of God that the world around you has created with fat baby angels, right, where they wear diapers that smell good all the time. And, you know, seriously, think about it. They play, you know, wonderful harp music. You don't even like harp music, but you want to apparently be around these things forever. Like, there's a reason. If they're wearing diapers, there's, you know, listen, that's, that's like a, a functional thing. Um, and you want to be around these critters for all of eternity. You don't get in the car and put on heart music, right? Why would you be happy with that for eternity? That is not real. God is incredible and real and amazing. And heaven is a place that's heaven because of his presence fully. He becomes ruler. No more weirdos. God as ruler. And so everything is immediately right. No vote, God. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now remember there, Minds perhaps are in the context of the story of Balaam. God's promises from Genesis 17, the fulfillment of that, and someone being in there who has this love of money problem that's making it difficult for him to be fully obedient to what God is calling to. Now, if you're a very careful Bible student, and I know that you are, you may know that Balaam leaves Balak but if you're really careful and you caught one subtle thing and you flip to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 14, you'll read this. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So while it might be true that in Numbers 24-25, we read, Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak went about his way. Something else happened in that time. Maybe Balaam came back and whispered in his ear and said, Hey, listen, you can stumble them up in these really specific ways. They can't eat pork. 
smoke a pig. Something happened. I think it was love of money. I think he went back and said, I know how to get a payday. I might not be able to say something that God didn't say, but I can provide some consultative services on the side and help them understand exactly how to stumble Israel. Verse 10 of Malachi 3, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the first fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, <laughs> there, this is where I have no idea how we're actually going to pull this off. There's a lot going on in those two verses. Um, I'll bring you a little bit to the conclusion. Verse 12, read the first three words. Then all nations will call you blessed. You will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Problem here is some people will bring you to verse 10. Um, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now they will make food be money and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, that I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing. And what they will do is make the blessing that pours down out of the window of heaven be your health, your wealth, and your prosperity. Um, and this is patently wicked and not what is in this text at all. It is not here. Um, we've already said that this is written to a nation of people with very specific promises who are supposed to come back to God in very specific ways, and there is a requirement for their tithe that is being drawn on in this passage. This people's government, we're not like Americans' governments, right? Uh, we hear clear-eyed politicians that tell us the truth about their policies and stances, um, and then we go and we vote, and our votes are tallied, and the, the majority of people that have selected someone based squarely on their policies and their clear-eyed explanation of the same are elected. And then those people go out and pick other representative leaders. And so now what you have is the majority of people who are lined up behind this person and say, I like the way they're going to run the economy, or I like the way they're going to deal with justice. I like the way they're going to handle these kinds of situations. And the leaders then that they pick to be heads of various things, um, whatever those things may be, rule in a similar way as them. And so we get what we want, a representative form of government. This is not what Israel had. Israel did not have a representative form of government. They had a theocracy. God was king. And under God was, well, nothing, except for the priest who just did his work, okay? But full time. You know what the priest did? Um, you, you read some of the descriptions of the priest's job. Uh, it's not pa what pastors are doing today, okay? I I'm actually not sure what some full-time pastors are doing. Because when you, when you read the scriptures and you read what the priests are doing, they're inspecting scabs and wounds, um, you know, they're letting people know when they can come back to right worship. They are butchers. These guys with a knife must have been something to see. I mean, something incredible. Like, if you have ever butchered an animal or see that happen, this is not easy. These people are skilled. Um, you read about the way that, that the animals would be sacrificed. It's not some kind of a torturous, weird situation, right? Like archery hunting. Um, one, one swipe of the knife and the animal is dying. They're not trying to make this thing suffer and lay on the ground. They're butchering the animals in very specific ways, rinsing off entrails, separating, separating various things. These priests don't go do something else during the day, right? These, these guys are kind of doing some, doing some priestly duties and then headed off to, to Carnes to be a checker or a store manager or um, you know, sell uh, car insurance or whatever it is that people do. This is a full-time gig. And so how then, in this theocracy, where its ruler has people working for him, are these people cared for? 
by communal giving into the storehouse, a storehouse that is specifically built for that purpose. Because these are an agrarian people, and they're growing, and they're producing, and they're doing all these things. And we see it all over scriptures, right? A people was going to starve. God sends someone in and says, hey, here's how we should raise the grain over the next few years. We'll store it up, and then we'll be able to live. We'll divvy it out, and life will be great. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So, I mean, I guess what we're supposed to think when we're thinking then that this just transitions to money providing for the church, there should be a, a vault somewhere in here where we just were shoveling cash, right? Because that's what this means. If we're talking about the storehouse, there must be like a grain silo full of gold coins in the back, right? Like Scrooge McDuck, Scrooge McDuck is swimming around in there if we're going to draw all these false equivalents. Josephus coined the phrase theocracy, I guess, maybe. It describes God's people bound to him in covenant. We see it in Exodus 19. We see it in Deuteronomy 33. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 9, 6 said, and we've drawn on that a few different times. It is different than today. We are not ruled in the same way that we were during the nation of Israel's life on this earth. That's why someone like Gideon would not accept a crown because God was the ruler. And this is why when we look in the book of 1 uh, uh, Samuel, the children of Israel really want a king, right? Like one with a strong jaw. This is an affront to God because they're denying his kingship. God is the king. This is a theocracy. Things go like this. In 2 Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the people. Give them, I'm sorry, this is a paraphrase. Listen to the people, give them what they want, because they have rejected my kingship. Because God was the ruler. And so, in view then, because remember, we're stepping into an historical time to a specific people who are hearing a specific message. These people, when they read this, what's in view for them with the whole tithe, as my brother Jim would say, is one of, three tithes. We see it in Numbers 18, verses 25 through 30. You don't have to flip there. You can. You can write it down. Um, just don't be like uh, my brother LeVar Burton would say, right? Uh, don't take my word for it. Read a book. Numbers 18, 25 through 30. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites. When you take from the people of Israel the tithe, that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain on the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress, so that you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from all the people of Israel. And from it, you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest." Out of all of the gifts to you, you shall, you shall present every contribution due to the Lord. From each is the best part to be dedicated. Therefore, you shall say to them, when you have offered from it the best of it, then the rest shall be counted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and as produce of the wine press. Leviticus 27.30 adds perhaps more clarity. Every tithe of land whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So then, if the priests are who are in scope here under theocratic rule, these folks that had no other means of receiving income or receiving money, who are the agents of God's government to the nation of Israel, when the people that Malachi is talking to short the tithe, they reject God's rule of government. They're like the Bernie Madoff of Israel. They're cheating the very system that God has in place. And it's not like they're just cheating and taking it from the man. They're cheating from God. And they're not taking from God. God doesn't need it. They're taking from the people who are there to help them be connected to God. And they're taking their food away. Remember, Malachi is written to a people in a government system being called to repentance, back to restoration. God is reestablishing his rule over these people gracefully. 
Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter 31, verses 11 through 12. Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare the chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. And they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. The chief officer in charge of them was a Levite with his brother a second. This is the way that these offerings were treated. Now, verse 11 of, of, our, of our book today, Malachi 3, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the first fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fare, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Because he's talking about them giving the first fruits of the field, giving to the storehouse. He's talking about them giving food to the people who had no other means of contributing. He's talking about providing for the priests. He's not talking about giving finances. It's not about that. And so to come to this and twist your arm and make you give money to the building fund or the goofball thing we want to buy. Oh, well, we need a new van. Lord needs a van. You know? Or John and I can't fly, coach. My goodness, that's a tin can full of demons. We need a private jet. <laughs> My gosh, can you imagine kneeling, facing the ground before God? Imagine some of the things that you said that would be ringing through the back of your mind. Well, I need a new suit. I sweat through it every time I preach on TV. Lights are hot. <laughs> and remind me, ask me, there is a... Uh, like an hour-long deposition of a guy who was talking about the ministry house that was like a $5 million uh, asset on the books. Was, sorry, that should have been a liability. Uh, but it was an asset on the books of the church uh, because they needed to do ministry out of the ministry house and uh, needed $2,000 suits every night for the, the TV program. Uh, there's a guy in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, Kevin Ezell, who talks about stewardship he said he took over a church one time, I think it was in North Carolina, and he was going through and visiting people because in the South, that's what you do. Uh, because in the South, they'll let you in, right? Up here, you try to go visit people, they won't answer the door. It's like they're not home. It's like, uh, it's like <laughs> Halloween, you know? Just turn off the lights and pretend like you're not home. You're like, my kids this year, when we did trick-or-treating, they'd knock on somebody's door. Everybody's weird this year because, you know, they have reefer trucks scooping up dead bodies everywhere with this disease. But uh, my kids would knock on the door of people's houses, and they would be like, they would get so offended. They're like, Dad, I see them in there. They're not opening the door to give us candy. He tells a story about going over to a woman's house in his congregation, and she apologized for, for not having her, her, her teeth in or not having some teeth to put in. Um, and she talked about giving to, I think it was the Annie Armstrong offering. Uh, she said, you know, I really I haven't saved up enough for my teeth because it's just some budget that I don't have to do it for. I can move it over here and give to this mission offering. And he said, he had a policy, and, and forgive me to the, the, one, the wonderful saint that this woman is, I forget her name, but he had a policy around spending ministry funds, and he named it after her. He said, if I wouldn't spend her money like that and feel okay about it, then we're not going to spend money like that, right? Because we can become disconnected from a memory that you know, there's a lot of circumstances, a lot of instances where the widow's might is going on. Some of us are giving out of abundance, and it's, it's mechanical, um, some people are giving sacrificially. I'm not saying you should be one or the other. I'm just saying that's happening. Um, and so that weighs heavily when you're making financial decisions with the church's funds. And so you should never, I mean, it's disgusting to come to this text and make someone feel bad about not giving so that the, the blessings of heaven will pour out on them is academically dishonest because it just doesn't say that. This is about plants and rain. Um, and, and unless maybe they're not careful and they don't know and they're not a liar, but I think in a lot of instances, people are lying to get money because this is their paycheck, right? They can't tell you the truth. They need a paycheck. You're lucky here that everybody just doesn't get paid. <laughs> so you can give or not. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me. I give here too. I don't get anything. So it just, makes, it just encourages my already mean attitude. So this is an agricultural people. They know that this is talking about their harvest. They know that opening up the window of heaven and pouring out blessings is talking about rain for crops, not some window of gold coins. 
We have to tune our minds to the context of Scripture if we really want to understand what it says. If we don't, if we just want to talk on top of it and say what we'd like for it to say, then we don't have to tune our minds to anything. We just say whatever we want. And that happens a lot, but it's not the church. It's a church-based organization. And so we have to tune our minds to the concept of Scripture. We don't want to be like Balaam, whose donkey could see God, but he couldn't, because he was so distracted by the love of money. And so people that see God and truth shouldn't be bribed into giving 10% of their income. Those who see God for his goodness and his glory give joyfully as redeemed, renewed, transformed believers. And churches would do well to put God on display in the word rather than joint lock people with guilt and misapplication of scripture to get them to give. God's government to his people, Israel, are shadows of the substance that's yet to come. That's one of those shadows we can look back to that's fully not lit for us yet and say, oh, I see what he was doing there. And then he turned us over to this mess, right? And Jesus, Jesus was there and we were connected to him, but the government was crazy. But it's coming back to a return where God is rightful king without all of the sinful world system behind it. And so with Christ in the light, we can go back to the shadows and see more clear-eyed what was going on and get a fuller picture of the conclusion. It's like going back and reading the end of the book and saying, okay, that could be an interesting story. (laughs) Like in the end, if you watch Squid Games and you didn't realize that the old man player number one was actually behind the whole thing, Sorry, I just wanted to do like a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. (laughs) You would want to go back and watch that story if somebody hadn't ruined it for you. So uh, maybe, maybe for you, you've never been manipulated into giving to God's church. Praise the Lord. You know what this passage says and what it's about. Hide that away in your heart. And when you see something else, Go speak to the person that taught it. And if they'll hear you, fantastic. If they won't, dust off your feet and move on. And tell some people on your way. That's wrong. We have a brother in this church who did that. I'm not pointing at Jim. You know he did that. I'm talking about somebody else. Happens to not be here today that's with us now because of something very, very similar to that. Health, wealth, prosperity church. We've never once had a message on giving And I don't think we ever will. It might be that something comes up that's hyper-specific for a missionary that's on the field, or maybe there's some very specific need that we can point our finger at in our own congregation. We might talk about that. Um, But we will move through the scriptures, chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, and the scriptures will go forward and illuminate God, and he will be beautiful and glorious, and people will give or they won't. (laughs) And if God wants us to be here, he'll take care of us. I've been about this for 10 years and never even been concerned about that. Because here's the thing at the end of the day, if God wants us to fade away and go, we'll just do that. and It's okay. We'll, we'll worship somewhere else. It's fine. Malachi talked to a people under theocracy about providing for the priests so that the work of God could go forward, so that a holy kingdom, a holy nation of priests could show God to the surrounding world and so that the priests wouldn't have to be distracted so that they could, they could create that environment by which many, many people could come to know God truly and they could leave a legacy behind to fully understand what theocracy would look like to point to the future and how Jesus would be revealed through the covenant people in the new age post-cross so that we would understand God's character and so that we would see God pull these people through near impossible circumstances time and time and time again and be re-encouraged that he'll do it again towards his future theocratic government, which will be beautiful in comparison with this crazy three-ring circus. God is good. I'll leave you with this, Matthew eighteen six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Always like to live on a note, leave on a note of encouragement. Let's pray.
God, we love you so much that you are so much greater than any treasure that this dying rock that groans under the stressors and strains and cracks of sin could ever bring us. This place where moth and rust destroy. We thank you that you gave us your word so that we could see your great value and wonderful truth and come to know and love you. God, I pray for anyone who might have seen your goodness and grace for the first time this morning, that they would turn to you as their God, Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and the Holy Spirit as their guide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.